Hello and welcome. My guest today is Nathan Baugh. Nathan is a writer and student of creativity and storytelling. In this conversation, we dive deep into how a near-death experience set Nathan's life in motion, how he goes about capturing his ideas, why he's venturing into YouTube, his morning routine to write effectively, how he goes about improving his own taste, the process of writing a book, and what emotion Nathan wants people to feel after they interact with his writing in some capacity. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by potentially you. This episode is not actually sponsored, but I am interested in taking on the right advertiser for products that I advertise on this podcast. It's got to be something that I use, something that I trust, or really trust the people behind the product. So if that sounds like you and you would like to reach creators, entrepreneurs, people who are going to change the world in some capacity, send me a DM on Twitter at Miranda. It's probably the best way to get in contact for a sponsorship opportunity. And if you enjoy this episode, please do me a favor right now and share it with somebody you think will enjoy it as well. Whether that's a text message, an Instagram story, putting it in your group chat, tweeting about it, it all goes a long way in helping the show grow. I actually really enjoy, I've been noticing people put quotes of their favorite lines from the episode and it's reminding me of specific things. So if you do that, I might go ahead and retweet that myself. So please share the episode that helps the show grow. And now here is Nathan Ball. Nathan, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really grateful and honored for you to be here. There was a time when we were going to do this initially, maybe like a month ago, and I have on top of my notes, a near-death experience. So I figured we would start there for this podcast. Yeah, I guess we can jump right into it. I, uh, sophomore year of college, was chemical engineering major, just absolutely grinding on that. Uh, my appendix burst. I didn't know my appendix had burst. The doctor told me it was a stomach bug. Go home. Think everything's fine. When your appendix bursts, that pressure releases from when it's inflamed. But when the pressure releases, that actually gets rid of a lot of the pain. So I thought I was fine. And two days later, all that pain came back. It came back 10 times worse. I lost 25 pounds in 72 hours. I was terrible. Went to the hospital, septic, fun times, and I have an eight-inch scar, belly button down. Good stuff. Kind of walk for a couple of weeks, kind of lift for three months. Awful. Uh, but I, an experience like that really reorient, reorients kind of your life. For me, it did. And I realized, okay, I don't want to do chemical engineering. I, I do not enjoy, enjoy thermodynamics or fluids or anything like that. Um, so kind of took a step back. Like, what do I want to do? Uh, the answer, I, I, I've always been creative, enjoyed storytelling, reading, playing video games, but more on the like creating the world kind of lens. So rewarding myself into that, switch majors, start writing books very intently. 
Uh, and that's kind of where my creative journey, I would say, took shape. It was through that experience. Okay, so what came first? You putting out on Instagram, uh, creating an Instagram account about your fiction writing? It did. Or was it creating on Twitter about sports? Good question. Uh, definitely Instagram. I just messed, I messed around with it for maybe a year. It, it didn't go anywhere. Uh, now I have a, a friend of mine, Alex and books on Instagram is, I, I should actually tell him this story, but he, he is massive on, on Instagram for books. And that's what I wanted to do, but just kind of did it to work that first time, uh, but tried it. And I think that failure eventually led to more success on, on Twitter on another platform because I knew what didn't work and learned from that. When you say it didn't work, like what does that mean exactly? And how did you judge whether or not your experiment had been successful or not? Great question. I looked at time input and then just output in terms of was this driving any results I wanted it to. Uh, I wanted it to drive basically just eyeballs to what I was working on and to inspire people to become authors, things like that. Uh, Great goal, just didn't work. Did it for six, seven months, no traction whatsoever, maybe like a thousand followers. And to me, the time input to get there was not worth it. So I stopped that. Uh, It was also just taking a ton of time and I needed to just write instead. That, That was the more valuable thing to do. And then how long after that experiment fails, do you go to start posting on Twitter? It was three years. Three years. Wow. Yeah. Holy smokes. What were you doing in the three year time frame? Enjoying senior year of college and then going into I went into consulting after school and also working on fiction the entire time. Okay. So a lot of people are in this situation where they're doing something. Would you consider what you're doing with consulting not creative work? Yes, because I knew there was a specific route that I could follow to be successful. And I had seen that route done by other people over and over. And I knew that if I just did what they did, I'd have a good career in consulting. And to me, that is innately not creative. So that's what I was trying to get at, which is like a lot of people are doing something that they don't consider creative Mm -hmm. and they're not enjoying that. And maybe they're listening to this podcast as a way to help spur them towards a life of more creativity. So I guess what path could you offer to illustrate that possibility? Your friend, Zach, how do you say his last name? Pogrop. Pogrop. I just realized or figured out how to say his last name very recently. He had to correct me (laughs) because I said it so many times wrong on this podcast. Zach Pogrop. Shout out Zach. Yeah. He talks about obsession. He's obsessed with obsession. It's very meta. Uh, and I think he, he's very much on to something. Figure out what you are obsessed with. For me, that is storytelling. How do I... And, and when I say storytelling, I'm specifically talking fiction. But I, I'm also fascinated with studying you know, other realms of storytelling, whether that's through entrepreneurship, through nonfiction through TikTok videos, through YouTube videos, so many different avenues for storytelling. But for me, when I say it, I'm mainly talking fiction. That's what I'm obsessed with. So then it's, it's followed that obsession, followed that curiosity 
and see where it leads you. And when I say follow, I mean like sit down and write about it and see what comes out. And you, you'll surprise yourself. I surprise myself all the time just by sitting down and writing about what I'm obsessed with. It's interesting because if a lot of people looked from the outside in at your Twitter over the past two years, yeah, they wouldn't say this guy's obsessed with fiction specifically. Yeah. So how does that, how do, how do you reconcile that when the content that you're putting out is so helpful? It's about creativity. It's about storytelling, but there hasn't been a real focus on fiction writing specifically. And you're telling me you're spending so much time thinking about that. Yeah. Like how does, how do you think about that? There's, I, I look for the overlap and different places. Uh, so when I see Steve Jobs has this great video where it's the iPhone product launch. And there's so many things that he does that are applicable to fiction that, so he starts with, you know, you always hear about hooks, starts with an amazing hook. He includes humor. He prank calls Starbucks in front of a 4,000 person audience. Who does that? That, that That's a, an amazing storytelling technique to bring in humor to a very serious product launch to hundreds of thousands of people. He knows how many people are watching this and yet he brings in humor. How do you do that in fiction also? Lightens mood, lightens everything. So I'm always looking for overlaps between, you know, different, you call it categories and how they might apply to fiction. That's what I look for. And then I'll just share what I'm finding that's interesting. Your Twitter account, man, is just such a valuable resource for people who are interested in creativity because you're, the way you're able to break down the storytelling, it's creativity, and it's always it's always people that are so recognizable and you're like, oh, where does that come from? Who is that person and what did they do to get to that point? And what were the the levers that they pulled? When you're going about consuming things on a daily basis, like how do you figure out, oh, this is tweetable? You look for those aha moments. I'm listening to a podcast, watching a YouTube video, and I feel the need to you know hit the rewind button 15 seconds probably a good sign that there's something there that other people will be interested in too. And then I'll take that clip or I'll write it down, whatever it might be, just capture it somewhere. Uh, there's there's this idea that the best storytellers are not you know, better at storytelling than anybody else, but they are better at capturing their ideas when they happen. And then they can go back and look at them. I believe it's James Clear. I don't want to if it's somebody else, I apologize. I think it's James Clear who said that. And it's so true. I uh, have to capture your own ideas. So for me, I have an Apple Notes and we'll just jot it down in there if I'm on my phone and from my computer, it goes in a notion. And how does story logging play a part in that? Good question. It's a, it's an Matthew Dix who wrote Storyworthy. It's one of the best books that you can read on storytelling. Has this idea called Homework for Life where each day you take a few minutes and write down one story that happened to you that day. So for today, for example, I might write about this podcast. We had some mic issues before we started recording. It was kind of funny. The guy came over. He had just been in the sauna. He's fixing our mics shirtless. That's a great story. There's something there. I'll probably write that down as a story for the day. And you do that consistently. I try to do it every day. 
almost a day here and there. But over time, you don't just have the one story per day. You start to connect, oh, this happened last June. How does that relate to this thing that happened you know, that September as well? And you start to have these overarching themes kind of throughout your life. Uh, and I noticed that kind of thing so much more now that I've started that homework for life habit than I would have otherwise. It reminds me of stand-up comedians because stand-up comedians go up on set and do a, a comedy set once every, maybe once a night or three or four times a week. And they're constantly testing stories. But what's amazing about Twitter and the power of it is you can test stories all day, every day. Yes. Did this story resonate? Why did this story resonate? What happened there? Why did this connect with people? And you realize like sometimes it's just about the hook or sometimes it's just about the delivery or sometimes it's just about the energy that you had prior to writing that thing. And so it's really exciting because if you think a stand-up comedian can only test one set every night for a week straight, so seven total sets. Like we could do seven sets in a day potentially and I think that's why I'm so, I lean on tweeting everything. Like I, I go further in the direction of like, if this is interesting to me, like Lisa Ann followed me today. And it's just like, I'm going to tweet that. I'm going to put that out because I'm going to see if people are going to resonate with that. And then somebody else might be like, ah, oh, no, like I don't want to share personally. And I respect that. And But I want to test as many stories as possible yeah. so that I can just put more out into the world. And I don't know what's going to resonate with people. That's kind of how I, I operate through Twitter. I take a similar approach. If if something resonates, then I'll pretty much set that aside and be like, okay, I should do more like that. People enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing it. Let's do more. And then to your point, if something doesn't really resonate for whatever reason, uh, it's totally fine. And that's something that was hard for me at, at some point when I was trying very hard to grow Twitter and whatnot. How do you not get addicted to that dopamine effect of the light? It's difficult. And so I, my mindset, I'm trying to say, I'm just going to share cool stuff. And if people like it, that's great. And if they don't, that's also great. It doesn't totally matter one way or the other. Uh, so that, that shift for me, one, it's still hard, of course. Like when the lights are on, it's like, oh, that's great, whatever. Uh, but having the mindset of like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It really is okay. Either way has helped me a ton. When you separate the tweet from your self-worth, yeah. it's like, okay, this tweet that I posted got seven likes or three likes. Like that doesn't mean I'm worth three likes or seven likes or zero, right? It's just like, how do you separate yourself from the things you post? I think is a question every content creator should be asking themselves and thinking about yeah and, and so tactically a few things that I, I do on my phone in general i've turned it to grayscale which really helps with the phone addiction so if anybody's struggling with strong tiktok too much or instagram like turn your phone on grayscale and it'll solve a lot of your problems uh, another one is just turning off no i have no, no notifications for anybody but like family and close friends for text calls i'll still get notified no notifications for Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, any of that. At some point, you just need to, you need to do so much of that, the notifications specifically, because it's overwhelming at a certain point. Um, but even if it's not overwhelming to you, I think it's like, it's a good practice to have to just check things when you feel like you need your call to them. 
So for you, it's just like, when did you realize that point of like, all right, there's too much stimulus coming at me and I could spend all day on the phone if I, I think I looked at my like average screen time or whatever, and it was like four hours plus, and it was like, that's terrifying. On the phone only. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's what's the laptop. Right. Yeah. You add both. It's you know, that's full day. Yeah. Full day. I was like, that's somewhat terrifying. I don't, I don't like that. So how do you fix that? Um, and, and for me, like those things have significantly helped in just, if I need to go work on some, just leave the phone in the other room. That's uh that's a great one that I you're trying to do as well. What's your, what's the morning routine like for somebody who's trying to write fiction and is obsessed with fiction writing? Mm, good question. I actually do most of my fiction in the afternoon. This is something that I, I try to hammer home. Like there's no perfect way to do this. Like it's very uh, popular. It's like, oh, you have to wake up super early and do it then. You have to take cold plunges. You have to like do the sauna. You have to, like, it's all BS. You don't have to. Uh, like Brandon Sanderson is one of the biggest fantasy fish authors in the world. And the dude does his best writing at 1 a.m. He's sold tens of millions of copies of books. Uh, and you have William Faulkner, who is of the, you know, I write when I'm in his, one of my favorite quotes is, I write when I'm inspired and thankfully I'm inspired at 930 in the morning, every morning. So like that, that's, that's great too. And it, it works for both guys. And then you have folks like Stephen King who do not use outlines. Stephen King's published dozens of books, one of the most successful authors ever. He doesn't outline anything. That goes against everything you ever learned growing up. Uh, and then you have, you know, J.K. Rowling, who does outline. It, it, there's no right way to do it. So for me, I, I just try to pick and choose from each. I'll try something. If I hear something, I'm like, oh, that sounds like it'll work. I'll try it. And if it sticks in my process, I'll keep it. And if not, then I'll discard it and keep moving. Uh, so just like figure out what works for you. That's the best thing I've done. What stayed with you? The best writing advice I've ever heard is from Neil Gaiman. I believe it was on a Tim Ferriss podcast. And, and he said, when it's time for him to write, he lets himself do one of two things. The first is write. The second is do absolutely nothing. Can't scroll his phone. He can't hang out with his kid. He can't go for a walk. He can't nothing. It, and he says, do write or do nothing. And at some point, you'll get tired of doing nothing and you will have to write. And that for me has been incredible advice. So when I really want to sit down and focus, that's my go-to constraint, if you will, is I can write or I can do nothing. And how long do you set aside for that period? A few hours, probably three. I, I find that the first hour is slow. Yeah, my brain takes a little while to get going or whatever. And, and so that first hour, I don't get out a, a ton of work. But hours two to like the second hour and that next half hour, I, I'm... I'm in flow at that point and the words are coming out and I'm just going for it. I have an outline, so I'll follow the outline unless the characters take me somewhere else. Uh, I'm open to that, but at sometimes you have to just like kind of slap them back into the outline I've found. Uh, so one hour of 
maybe not that productive work. One hour, when it at one hour, hour forty five of kind of flow state, and then at the end of that, my brain's kind of fried, and I'll take 15, 30 minutes to start wrapping up that day of writing. And I try to stop at a point where it's clear what's going to happen next, because that helps me for the next day. Uh, that's that's an idea that came, uh, a very popular idea, I think originated from Hemingway that a lot of authors do now. And I, I found that's a great way to like prevent writer's block. So you're telling me every time that you write, the first hour is unproductive or it's just not as ideal as one to two hours, like it's yes. very consistent for you? Yes, super consistent. If you just look at words just written into the Google Doc or into the journal, whatever it is, hour one will be significantly less than hour two. That's so fascinating because most people probably don't allot that amount of time for their writing or their own creative pursuit. And it's just like, how much better would it be in the second hour of doing it? Like even for this podcast, like Sometimes after the first hour, we're just getting started. We're just finding our flow. We're just finding the, but sometimes we don't have the second hour to actually like explore that flow. So it, that's a really cool and exciting concept. How should people think about applying that to their own life? A lot of the time to fix a problem or to create something, you just need to sit down and work on it. And I'll underestimate how long that creation process will take. And I, yeah. When I sit down to write a chapter, like, oh, I can, you know, knock this out in in an hour. Like I have the outline here, I know what's going to happen, and I get in, and it's like, mm, this, you know, this doesn't feel quite right. There, there's something off. Uh, and it's getting into that that flow state for me. There's this idea, uh, the creativity faucet that you can see. A lot of people will talk about it. Seth Godin, Julian Shapiro, um, ton of people will talk about it. Or is that John Mayer? Which one? Both. Both talk about Ed Sheeran has an amazing clip on YouTube. If you look up Ed Sheeran, Creativity Faucet, you'll find it. He is talking, he says that his songwriting process is like a dirty faucet where it's it comes out bad at first. Like it's dirty at first. You have trying on dirty faucet, you know, it's a little bit brown. There's, you know, some stuff you're like, I really don't want to drink that. But then after it runs for however long, 5, 10, 15, an hour, minutes, it becomes clean. And he compares that to a songwriting process where he says his first few ideas for songs or first few verses or whatever it might be are trash. He throws them away. And then the good ideas come later. I think it's really important for people to understand that. And to hear that for you, your first hour of writing is bad. For Ed Sheeran, the first things that he produces is bad because it makes us realize, oh, these people that are amazing at their craft are just like us. They're human beings. It's super encouraging for me. Okay. You know, if it takes him a little while, it's fine if it does for me as well. Yeah. Why are we, or why am I, and why are you too, so obsessed with creativity? For me, there's that itch to create something that if it if i don't lean into that i become a very unsatisfied person and when i am when i am creating things whether that's writing a newsletter whether it's working on 
books, whether that's whatever it might be, uh, there's a satisfaction that comes with that. And it definitely expands to the rest of my life. I just find I am a happier person when I create. Uh, where that itch comes from, I'm, I'm not sure. Is that something that you think everybody has or do some people not have that? What, what do you think? I think everybody is a creator. And I think that we often, school, society suppresses it because it optimizes for the average. And so I wasn't taught creative things in high school, in middle school, but I found myself drawn to creating a Nick's blog or creating a time management blog. But then I would hear like, nah, you shouldn't do that. Or you should focus on doing the average, doing the things that the average are doing. And so I think we're all drawn to it. We just have to, we have to water it and we have to give it light. And I truly believe everyone's creative and I think everyone is creating in every moment as well. And so when you say, I need to be creating, I'm thinking to myself like, well, in what moments are you not creating? For me, the not creating moments are when I'm kind of doing, I'm not pushing myself. I'm not outside of my comfort zone. I'm not going through the process of, oh, I suck at this. I need to get better. To me, that is an, it is, I enjoy that. Like I, I like to be bad at things and then over time improve. Um, like being outside of my comfort zone in that way feels creative to me. Makes sense. We went on a walk a month ago. To me, that was a creative act of us creating something that didn't exist there before, us having a conversation. Did it feel like you sucked at that or that you didn't enjoy it or that it, it was, was it pushing you outside of your comfort zone? I think our conversation pushed me to think about things in ways I hadn't thought of before. Interesting. Yeah. No, because I, I do wonder if the feeling of creativity is associated with the feeling of being uncomfortable. For everyone. I don't know. I don't know either. It, it is for me. Like I, I'm going to start doing YouTube soon. That's very uncomfortable. I don't like being on camera. I, I Maybe that's part of the reason I enjoy Twitter, enjoy writing newsletters, books. There's, there's no video component to that. So I went to, and I find myself, I'm comfortable on Twitter now. I know I can do Twitter. I don't know that about YouTube. So YouTube now, to me, is a out of my comfort zone type of thing. And I want to go learn how to create on there and see if I can do it. The answer might be no. That's okay. But it, it'll it'll force me to be creative in a different way than I already know how to be through Twitter or LinkedIn or these other text-based platforms. What does success look like for you on YouTube? You talked earlier about my, my Twitter is not specifically around kind of fiction. Uh, YouTube will incorporate that much more. There's, there's a few authors who do this very well and have used it as a huge 
as their platform where their fans really come and connect, follow their books, hear their writing advice. Uh, so that's that's more what YouTube will be for me. Uh, that's the goal. What does success look like? I think success looks like I get two videos out a month and they're very high quality in that category. Two videos a month. That's the goal for the next three months. And then we'll iterate. If it needs to ramp up, it'll ramp up. If the better way to do it is one hour long video that's super high quality and you can only do that one a month, we'll do that. How do you come to figure out two videos a month is what? You have to start somewhere. That's sounded like a good number. (laughs) Very just by feel or by what you think you can bring on. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people, the reason why they don't start something new is because they don't have constraints or an actual plan to do it. And or they believe that the plan that they choose is not enough to see that the results that they want. How am I ever going to get 100,000 subscribers if I do two videos a month? Like, So I'm just not going to do it. How do you think about all of that and people starting things specifically? I think there's a three-step process for getting good at pretty much anything. One, you have to get started. It doesn't really matter what that looks like. If you want to learn how to cook, you need to buy a recipe book and open it to page 25 and make that recipe. Just do that and then do it again the next week with a different page. And the next week, and the next week. So you've gotten started. The next step is getting consistent. So that's that weekly. At some some time frame, that'll push you enough that it's considered consistent. Right? Not yearly, monthly. Sometimes will work. Uh, I tend to go with weekly or biweekly. And then the third is you finally get good at it after doing it for months at a time. So you get started, you get consistent, and then eventually you get good at it. And I think that's it. And that's my process for Twitter. It has worked so far, and I'm going to do the same thing for YouTube. Where are you on that spectrum with fiction writing? Consistent. I, I'm improving. I can see myself improving for, for contact cipher in three books on number four. Each successive book gets better in different ways. But then at the same time, they each suck for different reasons. So it's figuring out what those reasons are and correcting them for the next one. And, and maybe I'll go back and, and revisit those characters at some point from these initial books. Uh, because there are some compelling things there. Where if I you know take book one and I apply everything I've learned in the past six years, it will hopefully be a better book. How do you figure out what improvement looks like when you're doing a creative act? Good question. There's, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at this. Twitter and any social media platform are great because they give you instant feedback loops, which used to be rare and now they're very common. Uh, I can post a tweet and if it's something that I spent a lot of time on and I want it to perform well, I'll know within 30 minutes if it's going to perform well. I'll know within five minutes if it's going to perform well. But is good performance equivalent to a quality creative act? Good question. Sometimes I think the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. Um, Mr. Beast has this great thing that I, I've tried to, you know, the, the algorithm, he says, is just people. Uh, and he, he's right. Like That's the way I try to think about it. There are 
Yeah. Someone, one person is on the other side of the screen reading what I'm writing or reading what I, or watching the video or listening to this podcast, whatever it might be. So there, there is definitely a measure of success in does that person enjoy it? Does that person enjoy it enough to share it? Um, and I, I think it'd be somewhat silly to say there's, there's not. Like with this podcast, I would hope that you do such a good job. The quality is so high. Uh, a measure of success kind of has to be downloads. Do people share it with their friends? Do they share it on their socials? Do they come back and listen to another episode? Uh, those are such interesting metrics. I don't know if you're able to track them very well. Um, but to me, that's a measure of success. And the same is true for a tweet or a YouTube video or a book. How many people buy the thing? Uh, but at the same time, you can't get addicted to that instant feedback loop. That's what I think the danger is, is it is a measure of success, but you can't just chase that dopamine effect. Here's the thing as well. Somebody sharing or liking something is different at different times. For example, there's a lot of people who have no idea that you exist, but let's say in 10 years, you go on to be this incredible fiction author that's known worldwide. That is going to inherently make this podcast more valuable, more shareable, more interesting, more insightful, because like, not only did he build a Twitter audience now of 200,000 people, and a newsletter of 50,000 people, which is super cool to me, and I'm super fascinated by it, but it's like, what happens if like millions of people start reading your books and have read your books by the time that they're watching this 10 years from now? It's like, that's a hard metric to quantify, yeah. to understand, to realize that you're not playing a game for, like a Mr. Beast video, for example. It's like, some of those videos are evergreen and will be seen forever. Some of those videos, no one is going to watch after that day, that moment, that thing, that whatever. And so I'm personally trying to create videos for 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And that's difficult to do in the present moment. It's hard to tell if it's actually getting better, but I'm curious what you think from all that. One thing that I enjoy about books that are, is so different from Twitter or YouTube or whatever, there is no immediate feedback loop. I will sit there for hours at a time, for months at a time, and write a first draft. And I will never have another set of eyes on it other than mine. And part of the times I'm like, damn, this is this is good. Like I'm onto something. And part of the times I'm like, oh, this kind of sucks. And, and it's that that back and forth with myself. Uh and I, I think it's very healthy for me because these social media platforms provide that feedback loop so quick. I, I find not having that feedback loop is is a great thing for my mentality, actually. Because it, it forces me, I'm just writing something that I would want to read. There's something great about that. The longer it takes to create something, often the more thought that goes into it and the more staying power it has for a longer time horizon. Not always the case. There's some you know, songs that get created in three minutes just because the perfects and the person is in the perfect state of mind or, or the right frame. But some things like, like really, if you sit with them for a long time, if you spend 
20 hours doing research on a person and then you talk to them, it really could be way more valuable because you put that extra time and thought and care into it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm curious what you think about this. When when you're looking into somebody's background and somebody on the podcast, doing that kind of extra bit of research that maybe not everybody does, is there something specific that you look for or that you want to create in that conversation? I'm aiming to help somebody understand themselves better. That is the measure of success. And I don't always do that. And you can't always get to that place by aiming at it directly. I'm like, dude, tell me something about yourself that you don't know about yourself. And I'm just going to be like, what? Like, yeah. So I kind of have to take the long route in order to get there. I have to think and live in your shoes to the best of my abilities. I have to think, oh, well, you know, near death experience. How did that shape him? Okay. Then he, he spent some time on Instagram, but he spent some time in the corporate world. How? Okay, now he's writing fiction and like really wants to take it to the level of to the best of his abilities to get it into the most hands and the most minds as possible. Okay, like how does that change your world? How do you think about life when that happens? And so for me, it's all about creating that experience and it's all about understanding what were the impactful moments, what were the moments that hit me based on my own life experiences as well. Because if it hit me, that you had a near-death experience that your appendix almost burst. Like, it, yeah, yeah. I know it literally hit you. Like, it, it hit me. And so I was fascinated by that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, it is just about understanding the human being and getting the human being to understand themselves. I like that. You need somebody, you're trying to teach somebody else something about themselves, but through their own thoughts, responses. Yeah. It, it's hard to do. And I'm still trying to work on it and improve it. And and uh, I hope I continue to do it for as long as humanly possible because there's something, there's some joy that I get from helping other people understand themselves better. And so for you, where does the joy come from in the fiction writing process? I love creating something that it just doesn't exist. That's why I write fiction instead of nonfiction because I can... It's incredibly nerdy, incredibly dorky, and I love that. I, I can create a magic system out of whatever I want. Give it constraints, give it whatever. I can create a character who doesn't exist, and then on the page, they do exist. I can think, you know, what does the world look like in 150 years, and write about it. Uh, it, it and... Fiction lets me do that more than any other creative outlet. And I I love that for, for that reason. And I, I I learn a lot from fiction about myself and about how the world works, both reading it and writing it. And I also loved it growing up. So it's when I help other people find that too. You mentioned it was nerdy or dorky, it's your own words. Yeah. Was there any part of you ever that suppressed your nerdiness or dorkiness because you thought it wasn't cool or you thought you shouldn't go down that route? No, actually. I I loved playing sports growing up and I loved reading books and whatnot. Um, and that was maybe a rare combination, I don't know. Uh, but my, my parents did a great job of encouraging both so 
what other reasons do you think point to the fact that you didn't let the child in you die? I think going back to the appendix bursting, like the doctor literally told me, he was like, there was a good chance you did not come out of that surgery. That's like, it was after the fact, thankfully, you know, weeks later. Uh, I was like, okay, wow, that's uh, cool. I was 19. Amazing. Like in great health, like very, like all that. That's, that's cool. You know, it happened in a, in a span of a week and a half. It, and it, that brought me back to writing fiction. And then I went through late 2021. Yeah, late 2021. I, I had never really dealt with like mental health struggles. And all of a sudden, I just like, I'd find myself sleeping in until 10 or 11 p.m. Not like me. At or 11 p.m.? Sorry, a.m. Oh, no. You're, yeah. I was just, it's like, holy smokes. Yeah. That- yeah. Yeah. And that's that's not like me. Maybe on a Saturday sometimes, but not every day. I found myself being lazy. Not like me. I found myself just like not really excited about much. I, I didn't get excited to go play basketball. I didn't get excited to go to the gym. I didn't get excited to write fiction. Uh, and it took months to get out of that that rut, that that slump. And I and when I came when I came out of it, we we switched apartments. We got a great natural light, and like my my wife was just amazing support system that entire time. And when I came out of that, I was like. I need to read more and I need to write more about fiction, creativity, storytelling. So like the harder things that I've gone through and there, it's all relative, right? With what's hard with what people, but when I go through like challenging things in my life, I always get pointed back to writing fiction. So that tells me, okay, I, I need to do this thing. It's like your body and mind are, they don't allow anything except what maybe your purpose or your calling or like, I, I, that's how I genuinely feel about the podcast. If I don't do it, I get physically sick. So it's like, what is going on there? Why is that the case? Why is it the case that you became sick or you couldn't get out of bed when you weren't doing the thing that like, what, what is that? Great question. And I, I don't know which one comes first. Um, for me, I, I think it's not doing the thing. And there's probably other factors and whatnot too. Like we had, uh, we'd moved to Spain. My Spanish turns out it wasn't as good as I expected. Uh, way better now, but at the time, no. I uh, didn't have like a good community there yet. And built that over. So there are definitely other factors too. It's a bit of a chicken in the egg problem, but. Yeah, for me, for me, I'm generally just a happier person when I'm writing fiction. And I think a lot of people probably have something that for them they're happier when they're doing, whether that's being an entrepreneur, building a company, whether that's cooking regularly, whether that's uh, running marathons. I think somebody, I think people have something that generally makes them happier. Yeah. And I think that becoming known to more people is just a result of following that over a long enough time horizon. So you, I'm reading Kevin Hart's autobiography right now. Yeah. And it's like, 
he's making people laugh since he gets his first award as a like a participation trophy basically on his swim team in high school and his first set just crushes it and then it's like when he gets his first job as a shoe salesman he's like entertaining everybody and people are loving his personality and who he is and then they're like yo you should try stand-up comedy and some of his friends are like nah don't don't do that but he's following the call of what lights him up he's following the call of like I get to excite people. I get to entertain them. I get to make people laugh. And when he's not doing that, he feels a sense of like, life's over. Like, this is not good. This is not exciting. And uh, I think life, from my perspective currently, is just about figuring out what gives you that feeling. And if you can feel it, if you can understand that feeling, you will be known and seen by more people. That's kind of like my working hypothesis on what fame actually is. It's just following the call for a long enough time horizon. So people, enough people understand your gifts. Yeah. And, and I think it depends on what you're, you're doing as well and what your goal is. For sure. I think some people, like what they're doing, it doesn't necessarily make sense for maybe for it to be that public. So maybe, I just in my mind, maybe it's not fame, but reaching towards whatever success looks like in that field for whatever your call is yeah i i think a better way to put it is like becoming known versus fame and the reason why is because i think of like my mom like born to be a mom incredible mother and so there are people that know her inherently around our community like oh my mom's a great mom like and people will say that to other people because they just know it's true so she's known in the community as a great mom And so I think that's a good point because like play that scenario out. Like maybe she starts writing books and like helps people from that perspective and she could take it that way if she wanted to. But when you do the thing that is calling to you, you inherently people want to share that because what you're doing inherently is creating great experiences for people, right? It's like if you create great experiences, we share great experiences. Where do great experiences come from? Great experiences come from you following your own calling, your own intuition, your own understanding. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Be known for that thing. Larry King once said that he didn't figure anything out while he was talking. And that is probably the one thing that I disagree with him about because I just figured that out from talking <laughs> to you. Yeah, talking, writing, those, those are the things where I figure things out. Yeah. So take me through the process of a book is a, a daunting thing. Oh, yeah. You've done it three times now. So like, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you start? How do you know like to keep going? That's one of the big things I changed after book one. I When I started book one, I, just, I knew I wanted to write a book. So I started writing a book. No outline, no nothing. It's like, all right, I'm just going to write the book. Uh, and then like 75,000 words later, I realized I have no idea how this ends. So I had to come up and I knew like for the genre that I was writing, there's kind of a recommended word count. So I was like, okay, around, you know, between 75,000 and 90,000 words, this thing needs to have an ending. So that was a nice constraint. I was like, all right, it's not an end. And then I had to figure out how it ends. And for me, that was a terrible way to do it. And now I actually 
will think through the ending first and then everything else more naturally funnels to it after I come up with the ending. So it keeps your plot tighter. It keeps your characters on point. I know how to foreshadow different things where the other way I did not. Um, Yeah, starting with the end, huge for me. And then how do you know when to start? What do you mean? Like, how do you know, like, all right, there's a book that has to be written and this is a story that I wanted to vote a long time. Because when you you have an idea in your head for 90,000 words, that's like a lot of hours, actual hours that you're devoting to this story. I'm sure you've had more than three ideas for books to create. How do you like, all right, this is the one that I'm going to pick. So when I, I finished book three couple weeks ago so when i finish a book i'm like okay i need to start another book that's part of it uh because i to me the longer i wait between things the harder it is to get back going uh there's that Stephen Preston has the idea of resistance for me that's a piece of resistance is just getting started on something else because there's that you know i want to take a break well that took a long time and there's no tangible benefit i'm not getting paid for it nobody's reading it like yeah that's hard uh so that resistance builds the longer i wait between books to get started so i just need to start something to keep that from really setting in and then there's the idea of okay so you're gonna start something but what do you start which is more your question for i've done it a couple ways um I'm still playing with what the right way to do it is. I like what characters get me the most excited. What world do I most want to create? And then another way to look at it is what potential ending is the most interesting, and how do you get there? So if you was to do it for for this current one that I've just started, it was the ending. I like the ending, so I wanted to write the book and do you tell people about it do you talk to your wife or are you like young or is it just like a secret thing until she'll get annoyed with me i'm like no you can't read it you can't read it but can she hear about it no draft one absolutely no mm-hmm. nobody hears about draft one at what point is it ready for you to tell your wife or tell people yeah like her or close friends will be after one round of edits um, I find that the first draft is usually, it's just me getting something on paper. So then I have not a blank page to work with so that the improvement between draft one and two is drastic. Uh, and that's an ideal idea that, uh, Stephen King has one of the best books to help with writing on, on writing. On writing, it's called mm-hmm. by, writing. by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And one of his big ideas for himself is that, like, you write the first draft with the door shut and you write the second with the door open. And to me, that that stuck with me and I, I've found it helpful because if I'm writing something and I think it sucks, it's hard to show people. But if I'm writing something and I think it sucks, it's much easier just to get it done not show anybody and wait for a round of edits. I wanted to talk to you about 
how taste is the most important thing because of our friend Billy. You're friends with Billy, right? He's great. Billy Oppenheimer. We are going to link down below his piece that he wrote on AI because- Have you had Billy on the podcast? He's coming on on Sunday. Is he talking about- We're going to talk about the piece. We're going to talk about his experience as Ryan Holiday's research assistant and just a fascinating guy. He's going to be sitting in this chair very soon. So very excited for that. But his piece around AI was so impactful for me because his, his basic thesis was, all right, if anyone can create everything and anything at any moment- What's actually going to be the significant part of that is going to be your ability to discern what is good from what is not. Your taste is so important. And you have incredible taste. If I look at what's on your Twitter, if I look at the things that you're interested in, I'm just like, Nathan's got great taste. So what goes into creating great taste? One, thank you. Two, I've never thought about it. Um. I will plug Billy's piece if you hadn't read it. It's, it's super good. It, I got to read the f- from first draft to final, and it was awesome. I, I actually I told him I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. Like, just post the first draft. He didn't do that, and it turned out even better. But I would have been very happy with draft one. And I'll, I'll let him explain his piece. So definitely, definitely read it. But for me, taste is it's almost like curation where there's so much in the world there's just so much data i i used to do consulting a lot of what we would look at is big data platforms for these different companies and if you think about the internet like one of those things like I, whatever the dumb stat is it's like we create more data and you know an hour than used to be created in years hundreds of years so taste and the ability to curate become more and more important as there's just more stuff in the world and as the ability to create things becomes easier. No code, you don't have to know how to code to do web design. So then the differentiator becomes taste. You don't have to write to produce newsletters or tweets or I think at some point in your future books, It'd be silly to not think that. So it becomes taste is what matters. That how do you choose what to put out? For me, when, when I'm looking specifically at, let's say, fiction, I think the broader question here is how do you know what's good? I, I do this thing called copy work, but do it for stories. And it's very popular in copywriting. There are some really good courses. Sampar has a very good course. Um, I believe it's called Copy That. And the idea is you take work from prior people who have done it that is exceptional and you write it line by line by hand. And to me, the reason that is such a powerful idea is because it then shows me this is what something great feels like. And doing it by hand, there's something about pattern matching and just knowing that this is exceptional helps me when I'm doing my own writing. Like I think that the copywriting for Twitter is helpful. 
or for LinkedIn is very helpful because a lot of copywriting you do it on Twitter and LinkedIn is similar style as writing a landing page. I, I would say for Twitter and LinkedIn, so that's helpful there. But when I'm doing it for for stories, I don't want to copy Ogilvy or you know some of these copywriting legends because copywriting is not storytelling. Um, I think a lot of marketers would argue with me. And I think there are, I think that you can incorporate storytelling techniques into copywriting for sure, but it's not a one-to-one. And if I find myself writing too much for Twitter or doing too much copywriting or doing copy work on too many things that are not fiction, my fiction suffers. So instead, what I do is if I read something and I'm like, oh, that was great, I'll mark it and I'll come back to it and I just copy that passage by hand in my notebook. I call it story work, copy work, but for stories. And that helps me know with fiction, okay, Neil Gaiman did it this way in his book, American Gods or his book Stardust. Those are exceptional books. These passages within them specifically caught my eye. I wanted to read them again. I thought they were you know, so good for whatever reason. And then copying them down by hand, it's like you see the actual techniques that he's using. And then it, it's easier for me to use those techniques in my own work. But what is that inside of you that goes, that's great? I think everybody probably has something like that. It's the being aware of it. When I'm reading, that's important. And the quick, I'm going to fold the top of this page down and come back to it. Or I'm going to write this down in the journal. Okay. Miss Bourne, Brandon Sanderson, page 151, straight for these reasons. And then I come back and I'll do copy work with it. So I'm just trying to be aware of what catches your eye. And, and I've found that the more I do it, the the more I look to highlight things that are great, the more I notice them. Um, yeah, so I think it's an, an awareness. It's mainly an awareness thing. And if you try to notice things that are great with whatever you want to do, then you're better at it. If you want to learn how to cook, the best way to do it is probably to go on YouTube and just do exactly what the person on the screen is doing. And then after a few tries of that, you can add your own spice to it. It just hit me for the first time that a good indicator of what you think is great is if you want to share that thing or tell somebody about that thing. It's like, oh, this meal was great. You have to try it. Well, if you go further than that, it's like, I have to prepare it. If you go further than that, it's like, how did the chef prepare it? If you go further than that, it's like, I want to copy the chef preparing it. Yeah. And then that copying of the chef preparing it set shows you, oh, these are the techniques. How do I apply that to a different dish? And so when you share, when you think about sharing, like that's the indicator. And I think what's so fascinating about the people who create stuff, creating podcasts or creating art or creating fiction writing is that. Those people are the biggest fans of the thing. It's like 
normally the case where if you have a writer, they are a writer because they've been fascinated by the people who have caught their attention and caught their eyes as writers. It's a cool concept, cool insight that I've never considered before. Yeah, that's great. And for me, that's why I love talking about storytelling. And usually it's fiction that catches my eye. You're totally right. But it can come from other places. You had Morgan Housel on. Psychology of Money, his book, fantastic. He tells so many stories. In it. And I love that. And I think that's one of the reasons his book has resonated with so many people. It's all about stories. Every Every chapter that Morgan talks about is a story in some respect. And that's a super cool part of what makes his book different. We've both noticed independently the same thing happening. Nonfiction writers are going to fiction. And you are another example of that. We spoke about that before we hit record because that's what's fascinating to us right now is, is on the edge of nonfiction and fiction. But what what is going on there? What's Why is that happening? And why is fiction grasping people who previously did nonfiction for so long. Yeah, it's, I'll just, I'll say a few names who I've seen, and these are, if you're on Twitter, you'll probably recognize them. If not, then you might have no idea who these people are. Uh, Thomas Frank, who is also been on YouTube, has started talking about fiction more. Uh, Mario Gabrielli, who writes Generalist, a great newsletter for entrepreneurship, venture capital. Uh, Nicholas Cole, great writer. Um, Friendship 30, all these people have started to talk about fiction. And, and to me, that's super interesting because I'm like, this is the thing that I mainly care about. And, and the, the, these folks are so successful in these other fields, whatever they've done. And now they're interested in fiction. Tim Ferriss, Matt Eliason. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's what, what about it is like drawing them in. And I think it's the ability to come at topics from, just wild angles that you don't necessarily have the opportunity to do in other places. I think it's fiction lets you explore the future better than a lot of things do. Um, satellites were first talked about in fiction. Uh, Andy Weir's The Martian. I don't know how much longer that'll be fiction. It could definitely, you know, happen in you know next 15, 20 years that people are on the moon and it, it looks a lot more like nonfiction than it does fiction. I think that gets people interested. Uh, I think reach. You mentioned it bef before we came on, but a subset of people is going to be interested in the nonfiction, and then another subset of people is going to be interested in the fiction. There's not, there may not be a ton of overlap there. So it's the ability to connect with a brand new audience, the ability to dream, really stuck out to me because so much of what is written about in fiction work is things that actually come to fruition and the ability to imagine. And our ability to imagine leads us to create worlds for ourselves yeah. in every moment. It's like, you're not living the life you want. Maybe you're just, your ability to imagine a better world isn't coming to your head or mind or heart in this moment. And so really what I think fiction does as somebody who doesn't read fiction or write fiction from the outside looking in fiction allows you to get better at imagining imagining a different world imagining yeah. more possibility it does uh, 
One interesting note on that, I, I've gotten to speak with some successful fiction writers and they will often talk about like different aspects of it. And there's, there's at their, at its core, there's three character, there's plot and there's setting. And the more you can interweave those, have them affect one another, the better. But I, I often ask them, which is the most important, which is the least important setting. They, yeah, they have all said setting is the least important. The most important is character and then what happens to the character, which makes sense because that's what we relate to. Dude, it's so weird because I just thought about that in the the realm of real life where it's like where you are is a lot less important than how you are showing up in the world. Yeah. That's a huge insight. I thought so too because as somebody who loves to create these worlds and I think that's really neat and interesting uh, it's a great reminder that no it's it's the character and how the reader sees themselves in the character that can create something great within fiction but on the point of setting I can't help but notice in the character in my own story moved to Austin Texas and so many great things have happened yeah and I'm like oh wait setting actually is important so as much as I was showing up with three podcasts a week in New York, it's like when I came to Austin, it just like took a new level of what? significance. Was that Austin or was that what Austin prompted of you? I'm not sure. But I know that the people here are just so in alignment with the people that I want to have on the show. People who it's normal to do what I'm doing. And it would be kind of odd if I wasn't in a sense. And because of that, it has just pushed me towards the future that I want and helped me become the person that I want by living here because the actions that I'm taking are being rewarded. We're in a gym. That's a podcast studio. That's like, that doesn't happen in New York. There are no gym slash podcast studios. This is your favorite things combined. Exactly. How has Austin played a role in the setting of your character? I enjoy being outside and Austin is very, it's very easy to be outside in Austin. Weather's usually great. Uh, I live downtown, so I can walk. Uh, there's a river that runs right through downtown. There's really nice trails all along it. Try to go for a walk there every day. For my kind of mindset, Austin's fantastic. It, it puts me, it makes it easy for me to do things that I enjoy with people I enjoy being around. Simple, easy. Yeah. When, when we moved back, we were, we were in Madrid, Spain for a while, and there were parts of that being in Europe that we loved. And one was going to walk everywhere. And the first time I came back to the US and I sat in traffic, I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is terrible. So we made a list of things that we wanted to be, try to emulate as best we could here. Top of that list was walking. Hence why we live downtown, because we walked to the grocery store, we walked to the gym, we walked to the trail. So I think there's something there about that I'm learning about is trying to intentionally design your own life to do things that you enjoy doing. I don't love sitting in traffic. Okay. So I wouldn't be able to walk everywhere. Uh, I want to be out in nature. Okay. So live in a city that makes that easy. It's warm a lot. It sounds very simple, but 
I talked about when, when I went through at a really tough time, mental health wise, some depression, I wasn't doing that. We lived in a small apartment, no natural light, uh, all that good stuff. And it was like, looking back, that didn't make any sense. I, I did not design the life that I enjoy. How much of this feels like you don't have a choice? What do you mean? Well, it's like for that example of like, all right, I want a city like this, like this, like this. Well, there's not that many cities in the world True. that you can actually choose from. It's like, you don't really have a choice if that's the reality that you want. When you talk about fiction writing, it's like, well, it's uh, when I do this, I get joy. And when I don't do this, I get depressed or upset. So I don't have a choice. I have to do it. Sometimes I feel like so much of life, we don't have choice. And I hesitate to say that because I know that the power of choosing to fall in love with the podcast in some way of, of treating it like a craft, I understand the power of that. But I also understand like at some point it feels like it's not a choice. How do you reconcile I, destiny verse? I'm going to take the other side please, because for, for me, there is always a choice there there always feels like a choice whether i sit down and actually work on the fiction or that one specifically because there's no deadline to it there's no consistency to it with with my newsletter i i don't feel like there's a choice that goes out every saturday morning no matter what and it, it, if it's not written by friday night okay i'm gonna be up till 2 a.m writing it and i'm gonna try to make it as good as possible because I want to va I value those readers' time and I want them to get something from it. So that one, I, I understand what you're saying, that there, there's no choice. I've set that schedule. It's now expected of me from other people. It's going to happen. The fiction writing, there are no expectations from other people. I don't have an editor who's like, you have this deadline in three months. I don't have you know, fans who want a book in, in a year. I, I don't have those things. So there, it would be very easy to just not do it. Uh, so that it always feels like it's a choice. And if, I, if, if that day I don't make the choice and I, for some reason, don't do the writing, I regret it. But that happens. That's a, that's a really interesting way to put it. And it feels like almost sometimes that we're doing, the actions that we're taking are leading to like the days that you don't write mm -hmm. or that you don't do it, like that's just the way it was and arguing with that reality or arguing with like, oh, I should have done this, but you didn't do it. So what, you're going to waste time and energy to be like, no, I should have. Yeah. But like, maybe like you need that time to help create the story in the way that you want it. Uh, or maybe you did it, but some of it, I think goes to, we were just talking about designing your life for things that you enjoy. Uh, when, I, when I don't write, I'm like, why didn't I write that day? And try to be introspective in that fashion. And then try to set constraints that make it easier. Ideally, there's no choice. You're right. Ideally, it just happens 100% of the time. So how, how, that's something I think about a lot is constraints. How do I use constraints to make it more likely that I don't skip that day? But is that ideal? Like, I don't, I don't know if it's ideal to go to the gym every day. Like going to the gym 90% of the time is almost better than going to the gym 100% of the time. 
Reason being, the results and the progress that you'll make isn't substantial, but you're having enough flexibility in your life where you can let things come up. And so you go to the gym, you're equivalent of that fiction writing, going to the gym 80% of the time, but you don't do it for the 20% of the time. It's like, well, maybe that 20% of the time is serving something. And it's obviously dependent on every situation and where you're at, but it's just a, everyone thinks that they should do everything every day, but maybe the optimal is five days a week. I I recently spoke with uh, Mark Sullivan, who wrote Beneath the Starlit Sky. It's a 2017 New York Times bestseller about um, an Italian teenager during World War II. Great book, exceptional book, incredible author, really talented guy. I was asking him about his creative process and all that. He either writes every day when he's working on something, but if he's not working on a specific project, he doesn't write. I thought that was so fascinating. Give himself room to breathe. Yeah. It's, it reminded me of what you were talking about. And I think that goes back to what you were saying, which is like, everybody's got to find their own way to do it. For some people, it's literally right every day. For some people, it's right when they're on, on the clock for that book, for that moment. And other people, it's some, somewhere in between. And figuring that out is so important. And you only figure that out by listening to yourself, messing up, doing the wrong thing, the quote unquote wrong thing in one moment, and then figuring it out later. Like so much of it is just about time in the game, whatever game you're in. No one can tell you how to lift weights if you've been doing it for one day or three days. Like you figure out your routine, the best way you show up yeah. after five years. So it's it's like who, who you are, what story you tell yourself. Are you a writer? I, I think of myself as a writer. What do writers do? They write. <laughs> I would imagine you think of yourself as a podcaster. What do podcasters do? Okay. You do podcasts. So that that's a powerful thing to me, and that just comes from habit. Uh, James Clear has talked about this a lot. Like the things you do every day, how do you use that to shape the stories you tell yourself? For your fiction writing, what type of story is... What type of stories do you want to be known for telling? A lot of people will give you an answer around some kind of theme or whatever. Uh, that's not, I don't think about theme when I write. Uh, and I don't know if that's the right way to do it or not. Actually, uh, one of Pixar's, one of the things they talk about a lot is they just get the story down and make it engaging and entertaining and then they start to think about the themes and how do you add that in once the once it's you know 90 95% of the way there um so that's how i'm i'm trying to take it i i want people to just enjoy it be entertained i want it to make them want to come back and read another book whether it's mine or somebody else's perhaps a better question might be what emotion do you want people to feel when they're done reading something you've written? So that's, that's a great question. Something I think about a lot with stories is that what is your end goal? Because that should drive everything else. And it should also drive what emotions you try to bring out of your readers. Uh, like if I get to talk to some founders about their storytelling and they, you know, if they're talking to like a VC or something, they, you know, they want them to be excited about what that future might look like. 
Like, what is that future state that could be if whatever happens? Um, for me, it varies by by book, what emotion I want to elicit out of a reader. Um, I think at the at the end of the day, there's a promise I made to a reader early on that you're not going to regret reading this book. You're going to want to come back and do another one. Um, Brandon Sanderson talks about promise, progress, payoff. I want to give people that payoff throughout the book, but definitely at the end where it's, damn, I'm glad I sat down and spent however many hours reading that. Optimizing for non-regrettable minutes. That's a great great way to put it. Like Elon said, that's what he's aiming for with Twitter's usage, which is, it's like, how much better would our world be if the people who were creating things wanted people to not regret using them, consuming them, living in them at the end of it? It's like so much, that sounds like an obvious thing. So much of our world is based on the inherent opposite truth. It's like you eat certain food. Well, if you continue doing that for 50 years, you're not going to be in a better place. I remember like Super Bowl was recent and someone was talking about if you did everything in the commercials, you would be in a worse place. Well, that is optimizing for regrettable minutes and regrettable consumption. So there's, there's an idea that I like a lot. Uh, where you know, the hook, the promise that whatever is made and the first thing you see, whether it's the YouTube thumbnail, the first tweet on a Twitter thread, the back cover of the book that everybody reads, the cover of the book, whatever art is on there, that makes you want to read it. You see that first tweet in the thread, you're like, I want to read that. You see the cover of the book, I want to read that. YouTube thumbnail, I want to watch that. And then you click into it, and it doesn't align, it doesn't deliver on the promise being made that is clickbait. But if it delivers on the promise as high quality content, uh, that's my, uh, uh, I think North Star would be, I want someone to just be glad they sat down and read my book. And your reputation with others is just based on, are you delivering on the promise that you're making? to the reader, to the consumer, to the person. Yeah. Like that is how we think about, oh, Mr. Beast, he delivered on his promise when I clicked that video over and over and over again. So I think of him in a highlight. So I think that's a, a good way to put it. I want to talk to you about storytelling and sp- specifically about your questions for storytelling, because I think these can be helpful for framing anything that anyone is creating ever. So five questions here, you can break them down. You can talk about how you came to these are the five questions and uh let's have some fun one first question is who are who is your main character or characters two what do they want three why can't they get it or how do they overcome and five how do they change i sat down with literally looking at the hero's journey which is a storytelling framework very probably the most famous one, Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And I, I think oftentimes I'll talk with somebody and it comes across to me that they're too tied to a framework. What, one of two ways. They are either too tied to a framework. They want, the, it has to be the three-act structure. It has to follow the hero's journey to a T. Or there is no structure whatsoever and anything can happen and there are 
15 different open loops, threads, whatever you want to call them going on at the same time. And that is just overwhelming for the audience. So I wanted to, for myself, create some kind of structure that was loose enough, but had enough guardrails, if you will, to keep me on track. And those questions really helped me to establish the the basics of the story while not being too rigid with what I'm creating where it seems formulated. I was doing research for this and I found out that I think you said Batman doesn't follow the normal hero's journey yeah. that you would expect. And I, I'm not a big not a big fiction reader or movie watcher. So this is like kind of playing in a different realm, but I was fascinated to hear that. Christopher Nolan in general goes against a lot, not goes against, but does different things. And you'll see with like Marvel, for example, with the Avengers, like almost everything is, you can look at the hero's journey, Star Wars, hero's journey. George Lou just talks about it a lot. He actually credits it with improving Star Wars. He didn't like where it was. He learned about the hero's journey, applied it to Star Wars, loved it. Turns out a lot of people did uh, too. But Christopher Nolan doesn't use it as often. He does a bunch of uh, different stuff. If you get really technical with Batman, it's it's like it's a three-act structure, but each of the three acts is actually there's it's like a half there's like a half time. And each half is actually its own three-act structure. You, you can get pretty technical with it, uh, but it the interesting thing to know is it doesn't follow that classic narrative style. And I think it probably made it much harder to pull off, but at the same time, rewarding that it did. And that there, there are some overlaps, but it, it doesn't do it near as much as many of the other famous movies or books. Did seeing that example make you more confident or more willing to try structures that didn't, that weren't on the, the, the normal radars or was it like, all right, like that's the exception to the rule, proving the rule. It made me more willing to try different things. I, and it's similar on Twitter. Like if, if you're just starting on Twitter, you probably want to go find somebody who's great at Twitter and try to emulate their style, what they're doing until you find your own style. Uh, and then when you do find your own style, and I'm nowhere near Christopher Nolan in terms of storytelling whatsoever. So I'm very much still on the, a little bit more structure is probably, probably better, a little bit less of that experimentation outside of those established structures or genre tropes, if you will. But to know that you can get good enough to break those molds and still see great commercial success and to produce a movie that 15 years later is talked about as one of the best movies of probably the century, I would argue, with The Dark Knight. The performances by Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, amazing. It's cool. It's really cool to, to note that just because everyone thinks you should do it this way, you could do it a different way and it could potentially work. Granted, you might need to put in you know, decades of experience right. to break the rules, but still cool to know. 
Uh, I'm curious, you spent so much time thinking about world building and you've studied everyone who's built world successfully. And I'm lucky enough, I think you follow me on Twitter and you, you're familiar with my world and yes. what I'm building. What could I be doing better as a world builder of creating the podcast, creating the ecosystem and feel free to be harsh and just throw me to the fucking wolves because I'm <laughs> very much an amateur in this game. We, you're not an amateur one. Your podcast is, is great. And yeah, so I don't think you're an amateur by any means. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit before, but grow and building one world and not trying to build multiple worlds. Uh, I think for you, Twitter is probably the, a great platform to contact guests and be book potential guests. It's a very easy platform to DM people on uh, and build that network. Have you found that for Twitter where it's good to help book guests? It's the best place okay. to book guests. Yeah. My theory would be it's not the best place to grow your podcast listenership. It's a text-based platform. Podcasts are not text-based. You're also on TikTok. You're also on Instagram. You're also on YouTube. Are you on? Are you anywhere else? No. LinkedIn, but not really. Like I don't check it. Okay. Uh, I would just become the best at one of those platforms. And it made sense to cross-post and whatnot. But I would have one that you just focus on and use that to accelerate your growth. And by growth, I mean podcast downloads. Because I, I think there, there's there's two parts of growth. There's retention and there's new people on the thing. My guess without looking at your numbers is retention's good because your podcast is very high quality. So people want to come back to it. So then it becomes a new user problem. And I think if you master one platform, you probably get more new users than if you try to do, if you do a B job at three places instead of an A plus job on one, I think the A plus job on one will bring you more new listenership. So that's one thing for kind of building the world, if you will. Second is you did something with me before we came on that I thought was exceptional and I've never, I, I haven't done a ton of podcasts, but doing enough that I know that this is rare. Uh, Danny came into the room and he had Creativity Inc., which is a book by Ed Catmull, one of the co-founders of Pixar. Um, and I had talked about storytelling a lot. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Pixar. They do an amazing job. And this is a book that I will be very excited to go read. I, I've listened to it on audiobook, but I've never read the physical copy. Uh, which shame on me, physical copies are way better. Um, so I'm very excited to do that. And I'll remember that. And, you know, and however long, heck yeah, I want to come back and do this because it's fun. So I think you should do that with your guests and make that kind of a consistent thing, especially for in-person guests. But if you can, you know, ship it to folks too, like very cool. Um, that'll make you stand out to your guest who, you know, it is also important. It's, it's what you talked about earlier. It's every time you do one of these interviews, it's somewhat of a call option on that person's future. And, you know, I, you've had a good friend of mine, Jack Rains on, I believe. I'm so bullish on what Jack does. Like what he does in like in the next 10 years, I have no idea, but it's going to be cool. Um, so giving somebody like that that book that gift that makes them be like wow like this guy was really thoughtful about this like that meant a lot he goes and becomes the next morgan household 
he'll you know be happy to come back on the podcast in however long yeah th- that's really helpful feedback and it's it's about creating great experiences for people the gift part of it it's like ask yourself at every stage of whatever you're doing like when you're writing fiction it's like how can i make this an even better experience for the reader mm-hmm. or for the person that i'm sending this to to read a first draft it's like if we ask ourselves that we create less regrettable minutes with our thing and the problem with creating great experiences is it's often time consuming you often have to put more thought into it you often have to think more or prepare more but from doing this podcast every time i've done that it has led to exceptional outcomes and so i want to use this as a, a little push to help people create more great experiences in their own life yeah I like to end these podcasts with a challenge. A challenge hopefully makes this a non-regrettable experience for the listener because they take something that they've listened to and then they actually do something with it in their own life if it is interesting and insightful and it connects with that person at a deep level. Like you don't have to do every challenge. I do 12 of these podcasts a month and if you're doing every challenge, like maybe you're going crazy, I realize, but it's just like maybe if it hits you at the right moment, at the right thing, so does a challenge come to mind from everything we spoke about or something we haven't covered yet? Go read some fiction. Uh, I, It's tempting to read a ton of business books, to read a ton about psychology. I, I challenge you to go read some fiction and just o- open your mind to learning more fra- from that. Uh, a few books I would recommend for learning what you can learn from them. Dune by Frank Herbert, uh, I think is some of the best world building I've ever read. So if you're interested in like how to fully put together a world and what the heck that even means, uh, read Dune. Ender's Game, Orson Scott Card, how to win, how to compete. Those would be my, my two that I recommend most for people wanting to end the fiction. Um, for those are both a little bit older for something more recent uh, Red Rising is very good it's somewhat like Hunger Games but space opera version and let's say let's give one more one more recent one I give two if you're looking for something massive really time consuming but one of the best books you'll ever read Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson something shorter uh, Salt to the Sea by Ruta Septis is a World War II book. Uh, very poetic, very lyrical. Uh, it, one of the one of the books I had is just like the most beautiful writing that I've read in a long time. I'm going to include links to all those below uh, so people can check them out and just click them very easily on Amazon. Where can we send people to add to those links to connect with you further if they want to stay in touch with your latest on world building, creativity, storytelling, and eventually, hopefully, a fiction book that people can go ahead and purchase. Twitter at NathanBall27. And uh, I would be honored if you checked out the newsletter, worldbuilders.ai. Uh, it's a good time. Oh, yeah. And do we have any expectation on when we can purchase uh, <laughs> fiction? No, no. The, the process is... 
we would have to do a whole nother episode to talk through the uh the publishing process for fiction the differences with nonfiction. it's uh who knows it, it could be it could be a year if i self-publish it could be three to five if i go the traditional route well we'll have to get you back on when you have that out and available i'm so excited for your future and i'm so grateful for your time and wisdom here today thank you so much man thanks for having me on danny